Hey, it's Jesse, the host of Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. I want to thank you first for being a supporter of Maximum Fun. It means a lot. We have a treat for you because you are a supporter. It's my interview with uh, Justin and Dr. Sidney McElroy, the hosts of Max Fund's own Sawbones. Sawbones is, of course, a medical history podcast, a show about all the gruesome, gross, and sometimes very funny stuff we did to our bodies in the names of health and medicine in historical times. Sydney is a physician and a medical history buff. She kind of guides her dopey husband, Justin, through it. Uh, Justin also hosts the Max Fun shows My Brother, My Brother and Me and The Adventure Zone. Uh, And now, of course, Sawbones is a book as well. It's called The Sawbones Book, The Hilarious, Horrifying Road to Modern Medicine. It's beautifully illustrated by Taylor Smurl, another Max Fun host. It's available in bookstores now. So what you're about to hear, we, we did air an edited version of this interview on Bullseye a few months ago, but this is the raw, uncut, the unedited Uh, All the dumbest jokes (laughs) that, uh, I'm going to be frank, mostly me and Justin made. Uh, All the gross talk about medical stuff, including some stuff that you can't play on NPR. Um, If you are easily grossed out by blood and guts and things like that, well, we warned you. Okay, let's get into it. Dr. Sidney McElroy, Justin McElroy, welcome to Bullseye. It's nice to talk to you guys. What an honor it is to be on your program, finally, Jesse, as an auteur, uh, <laughs> which is what us authors call authors. <laughs> really? Is that, what, is that what we say? Yes, that is what us authors, mm-hmm. or auteurs, if we prefer, <laughs> say. I, I didn't get that memo. <laughs> um, So you two were podcasting before you started Sawbones. Um, You had two television podcasts, which is a much more typical thing to podcast about. How did you end up podcasting about the very specific topic of (laughs) medical history? Sydney always gets mad at me because in interviews, I always bring up these two great shows, these great concept shows. They weren't great. (laughs) the first was called Go ahead. I, I go ahead. Losing the Sheen, which was a darn that's like the punchline, but the setup is it's a show about two and a half men hosted by two people that did not watch it until Ashton Kutcher joined the show and replaced Charlie Sheen. And it was a episode by episode recap that we managed to stick with for all of ten episodes, I think, nine or ten episodes on lo- losing the sheen before we're like, hey, this is there's no amount of it's like soul crushing. Yeah, it's soul crushing. It's soul crushing. Um and then we uh decided to do a general TV podcast called Satellite Dish. And that was pretty good. Uh except it made it so that we had to watch more TV than we wanted mm-hmm. to keep up with like the demand of having a TV podcast. Yeah, we got, we, and we just got too busy. And so we started to think doing a podcast is fun, but how can we kind of capitalize on what, what I was doing with the majority of my time, which was acting, you know, as a physician, being a doctor. And so she's a real physician. She wasn't acting. Yeah, not like, acting. Not, like catch, <laughs> not like, not a catch me if you can situation. <laughs> so I had always been interested in, in medical history. It was something that I, for fun, if, that is fun would would read about in my spare time and so we started talking about how some of these stories are pretty funny and kind of gruesome and pretty wild and maybe other people would like to hear them and then sawbones was born sydney why do you think you were interested in medical history even as a doctor i'm sure many of your colleagues are 
glad to know the latest and greatest and not worry about Pliny the Elder? <laughs> uh, part of it is some of the conclusions we've come to and the ways that we manage things. It's just fascinating to think about how did we figure that out? How did we get here? How did we come up with that? And that was part of why I wanted to know. And then the other thing about medicine is that so much stuff has eponyms. You you learn about, you know, d various signs that are named for different doctors or places or patients or whatever. And I was always curious as to who was that and what did they do and why did they get that named after them? And how do I get that? And <laughs> It was also a way uh, for us to avoid giving advice, which can get uh, legally uh, a little dicey yes. and just morally and ethically like challenging. So talking about what people used to do helps us to skirt that pretty handily. <laughs> I like that you're controlling liability with this podcast. That was the that was the original title, but we just <laughs> couldn't fit it on the thumbnail. When you started doing the show, what was the first thing, uh, Dr. Sidney, that you thought, oh, we have to include this? The, uh, I mean, the initial things that I knew were probably the things most people are familiar with. I knew about um, bloodletting. I knew about leeches. And I wanted to talk about that. Uh, I was really excited to do our episode on mercury because I, I i'm the only person on earth who was excited about mercury well that is alive today sure <laughs> hundreds of years ago everyone was excited about mercury sydney i think there are high school science teachers who are excited about mercury they show it to you rolling around in a little jar or whatever that that's true and that was exactly that kind of thing is is what i wanted to start with is someone saw quicksilver and said this must be magic or it must be medicine or something good let's start putting it in our bodies and so i got really excited about mercury um drilling a hole in your head was th those were the things that i knew early on <laughs> I, I know this stuff i want to talk about it well let's start with drilling a hole in your head because this practice which is called trepanation am i pronouncing that right i think i am right yes mm -hmm. trepanation yes. is a has an incredibly long history in human medicine that really would suggest that it's more useful than it actually is, considering what a hassle it must be. <laughs> um, what is the what is the history of trepanation? When did people start drilling holes in each other's heads? So as as far as we can tell, we have been finding skulls with holes that were intentionally placed there, not accidentally. Uh, I mean, since ancient times, all over the world, too. So this practice seems to have crossed, you know, geographic and cultural boundaries. Um, and some of them we can maybe trace to based on like changes inside the skull to they were uh, being used to try to treat an injury like somebody had a head injury and somebody actually tried to do something that we would do today, which is drill a hole in the skull to relieve pressure from swelling around the brain or from bleeding around the brain or something like that. Um, but other times it's not clear why this was being done. You find we found skulls with multiple holes in them that were drilled throughout the person's life for who knows what ailments they were trying to treat at that time. It also acquires like this weird free thinker, hippie devotee, like uh, section of the populace, like that's what's holding you back. Yes. You, you need the brain of an, like infants have soft spots. 
Infants are free thinkers. Fontanelles. Fontanelles, thank yes. you. Uh, you. Infants have soft spots or fontanelles, if you prefer. If you're an auteur or a doctor, like uh, like half of us. Justin, uh, and, I believe in the book you call them self-destruct buttons. Yes, that's correct. Uh, that is how I, I, as a father of two, began thinking of them because it's terrifying. They're, it is terrifying. The, the, the people tell you, like, here, hold your baby. There's nothing wrong you can do as a parent as long as you have love in your heart. Also, there's one place where they don't have a skull. If you touch it, you'll poke their brain. And anyway, have a good have a good parenthood. Bye. That that was really when things turned is that, as Justin was saying, that idea that uh, somehow you could achieve enlightenment or think more clearly or be happier if you drilled a hole in your skull. And so that's when the my favorite term, the concept of blood brain volume. Well, all one word. All one word. Blood brain volume. <laughs> uh, became like that was the popular theory was that you could increase your blood brain volume if you just had a hole in your head. And so... Try to get a doctor to put it there, and if nobody will, then figure it out yourself. <laughs> so can you take me kind of briefly, Sydney, through the basic history of what people, and particularly in what used to be called the West, um, knew about how the body worked up until the 20th century? Like, when did we figure out that hearts are important or that brains are for thinking. <laughs> uh, so we'll just sum up the past 245 <laughs> episodes of our podcast <laughs> in a breezy two-minute summary, no problem at all. Sydney, go. I'm just all looking for a few basic signposts I can build the rest <laughs> of this around, okay? Um, a lot of the, the first challenge is anatomy. I mean, that, that, was, that was the basic first challenge was what's inside the human body and can we take a look and figure that out? And it really wasn't until um, dissections started becoming culturally and, and socially acceptable. And that was uh, during the medieval period, actually, when we started to see more dissections and we got a better understanding of anatomy. Up until then, a lot of it had been derived from a couple people who had done dissections here and there and written about it. And then a lot of um, animal dissections. And so we had a lot of weird ideas about what was going on in there. So that was probably the first turning point was when we could actually start doing dissections. And then we knew what the pieces were. A lot of it from there forward until we get to, gosh, the 1800s, uh, the humoral system of medicine was still popular up until then. The idea that we have four humors and we've got to balance them. Um, we were still debating, did veins and arteries carry blood or air or um we had weird ideas like maybe our bones are made of semen. Uh, all of these things until... Jury is still out on that one, by the way. Science is going back and forth still. Really, it's not until the 1800s that we start to get a firmer idea of what each organ does and where different processes take place. Um, and then medical science really explodes at the turn of the century there. And throughout the 1900s, I mean, it's just advance after advance and the germ theory of disease. And then we understand, um, you know, how how we can infect each other with various illnesses and uh, then vaccines and antibiotics come along and and everything changes throughout the first half really of the 1900s well and, and also i think you have a, a huge shift in the idea of like what science can do because we didn't understand any of these things before we started applying treatments so like 
even back before we would understand why something would work or something wouldn't work, uh, it was just about, well, I don't know, let's try it and let's record the phenomena and see what happens and see what the effect of this thing is. And that is our role. It is not to understand why things are working. It is just to Mm -hmm. catalog what does and does not work. So we're trying treatments a long, 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 long time before we ever have the understanding to create a reasonable hypothesis for why these things work. And to differentiate between correlation and causation was a big deal. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of, well, your hiccups stopped after you walked through a crossroads so walking through a crossroads must stop hiccups hiccups is actually i think the best number one bet like if you want to understand medical history i'm obsessed with the idea of hiccups because hiccups and i think warts are the two Mm -hmm. where i would put it like throughout all of human history we have had hiccups and then stopped having them at a certain point after that. <laughs> and whatever you did mm-hmm. right before that moment was the cure for hiccups. Yes. That's why there's no consent. Like you hear a hundred different cures for hiccups and it's all because we just believed, well, whatever we did right before they stopped, that's the cure. That's mm-hmm. what did it. That works. So I'm not a historian of the scientific method, but I vaguely remember in middle school science class mm-hmm. them uh, saying that this, uh, my teacher is saying that the scientific method dated back to the Greeks or something. So, what was the change between the classical world and the 19th century that led scientists, and particularly medical scientists, to study things in a way that actually established causation rather than simple correlation? One of the biggest shifts. Again, I think right right before the turn of the century, we were treating patients individually. So you have an illness, and maybe I know it is the same disease process in patient A and patient B, but patient A needs to be treated this way because of whatever we decide their particular needs are that are happening within their body at a genetic level, even though we wouldn't have called it that at, the, at that time. Um there's something that you need that is this treatment, but patient B who has the exact same thing would benefit from this treatment. And that idea had to change first. The idea that, well, yes, there is such a thing as individualized treatment and not everything works for everybody, but generally speaking, we need penicillin to treat syphilis or something like that. Um, That was a, a big shift. That idea had not been applied to medical science. It was still very much an art and about understanding people and about kind of getting a feel for what they need. That's what I mean, doctors would come to your house and they would I- examine you and get to know your life and your family, which sounds wonderful, but didn't always result in the best treatment plan. As they started to take medical science into the laboratory and, and out of houses, we started to get more evidence for what actually works and what doesn't, not just what makes people feel good and what doesn't. Mm hmm. What did a doctor in, say, the 18th century, before the full scientification of medicine, have right? What were they right about? Hmm. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, diseases I, make there, you feel bad. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there, there were a lot of so on a human level. I think that there were some things maybe that we even had right back then that we don't necessarily still have today. Um, Doctors had a lot more 
skill when it came to applying the physical exam. Um, the physical exam is much better now because we know a lot more about what we're doing and looking for. But they were much more willing to uh, touch patients and figure out based on listening to patients and taking their history and and getting up close and personal what was going on. So, I mean, they certainly and that those were the clues they had. They didn't have a lot of diagnostics or imaging mm-hmm. studies or laboratory tests. So they had to do that. Um, so I think on a very basic human level, they had that. Uh, they did. We had some ideas that have that have proven to be true. Um, we've known for a long time that a healthy, balanced diet is good for most people. We've been recommend Hippocrates was the first one, I think, to recommend that. So we've had that for a long time. We know that exercise and fresh air make people feel pretty good and getting plenty of sleep is a good idea. So I think those ideas were kind of the mainstay of medical treatment for a long time because it was all they had that actually seemed to make most people feel better. Mm -hmm. It was kind of, I mean, it was like almost palliative. It was just like, well, I can make you feel heard and feel comfortable. Um, Mm -hmm. Even though like my best treatment might involve uh, leeches or wearing a cone of leather on my nose and poking you with a <laughs> stick or whatever it's it's very true um that doctors were very much appreciated based on how much better they made you feel and that was a very nebulous thing that was not being uh there were no tests to prove whether or not they actually did anything for your disease process so if you felt better after the doctor left then that was success and you would have that doctor come back again Sydney, you both teach medicine and are a family doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, has thinking about these things affected the way that you practice? I think for sure. I'm I'm a lot more in tune with the fact that even though we have come very far, and we know a lot more than we used to, uh, even 50 years ago, I, there's still a lot we have to learn. Uh, there is still a reason to take every new advance and look at it and analyze the data and figure out why we're making these decisions and then take all that and still try to advise. There is still some individual treatment for each patient. There's still a way to take all that evidence and then use the part of it that is most appropriate for each person for their health and for their benefit. And I think I've really, I've, I've really come to understand that better from, from studying this. Um, and I feel a lot luckier <laughs> to be practicing medicine now than I would a hundred years ago. I mean, I think about that all the time. I have a I have a chronic health condition. I have uh, severe migraine headaches, and I think of the fact that you know human beings have been on the earth for so long, like so long, and my health condition doesn't uh, threaten to kill me. Um, but it sure makes my life miserable. And I think what what an incredible difference just the past 25 years, even since mm-hmm. in my memory is, over the 25 years before that when my mother suffered from migraines. To say nothing of 75 years ago when my grandmother suffered from migraines or 100 years ago when some guy in Dusseldorf just, you know, would try to self-trepanate. Uh, so you could let the demons out or whatever. Uh huh. No, it it's very true. I I think um I've become I hope a better advocate for uh, 
like vaccination as an example because of this when I'm talking to my patients, uh, people who are nervous about it. I think having the historical perspective and saying, listen, I know I know how hard it is to see your kid get a shot, but let me just walk you through why and how and what it was like before um, having that perspective of what it was like 25, 50, 75, 100 years ago and the dangers that were out there for our for for kids. I I think it I hope it helps me be a better advocate. It's also been one of the frustrating things about making Sawbones in the past couple of years is that what started out as a show that was supposed to be about medical history and hey, hooray for us, aren't we smart? We solved all these things. Uh, far too frequently, I think our show has ha- recently has had to become like, hey, this is still true. <laughs> these things are still made up. Like there is still such a thing as right and wrong and true and false. And um, mm-hmm. some people still would love to steal your money to uh, make pretend to make you feel better um, or just get asbestos back out there <laughs> get its moment to shine again. <laughs> nope. Still bad. It's still actually very bad for you. Is actually one of the things that that uh, is still very true. So that kind of stuff has got it has it like inadvertently made Sawbones more political just because like <laughs> talking about how science is an actual thing is, has become annoying. Become a political uh, act. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Where have you found the the pain points for certain people in your audience um, when you start to talk about them in this? Uh, historical and, and, you know, entertaining, but nonetheless rational way? Uh, I mean, (laughs) the biggest response that we ever got, and it was kind of kidding, but the biggest response we ever got was an episode about fluoride. It was basically just like, Hooray, fluoride. It's good. <laughs> it, it, was, it was touted as one of the, the biggest public health achievements of the 20th century, the introduction of fluoride. And we, I, I did not expect the backlash for that episode. I had no idea it was coming. I, I'm usually prepared. I usually kind of know when we're treading into delicate territory. And I had no idea how many people are staunchly opposed to fluoride and have some ideas about fluoride that I would say are inaccurate. Uh, we had a strong response to our episode about gunshot wounds because yes. I think we sort of characterize guns as anti-medicine. I mean, let's let's call it that. If there's a bad guy in Sawbones, it's it's anti-medicine, and I think that we kind of characterize gunshots as. Guns is sort of an anti-medical device. <laughs> and that is, I think, a fair well, characterization. I, prevention is part of medicine. And that I thought it was prudent to mention that the best way to treat a gunshot wound is to prevent it from occurring in the first place. And that was apparently a very polarizing statement. Uh, yeah. I have learned. Yeah. I feel like I heard a lot of feedback about something that, look, I mean, we can talk about political disagreements we can talk about cultural disagreements and you know if you're talking about fluoride or guns you're talking about those things um but i think uh, doing an episode about the keto diet is basically <laughs> uh. is basically just stepping into reddit waters that you do not want to mess with 
A lot of people wanted to tell Sydney uh, about being a doctor in the weeks following the keto diet episode. Yeah. A lot of people had some very uh, people without necessarily medical degrees. I think had some very strong feelings about what they'd read on the internet about the keto. Diet. I was shocked how angry people oh, got and how defensive people are about a a diet program. <laughs> That really, I keep waiting for it about vaccines. Every time we talk about vaccines, I think, ah, we're going to get emails. We don't really get those emails anymore. It's stuff like the keto diet. I think people sometimes, uh, Sydney has a habit of saying, like, Sydney, I think, always has to default in part because what our show represents. Sydney has to default to what there is research to support. And I think that, like, the keto diet probably hedged its bets uh, in that episode by like, here is literally what we can and cannot prove with the research that exists. And I think uh, there's a lot more anecdotal evidence for, mm-hmm. for things like the keto diet, but it's just like, it's an, it, if, if, a, if a diet worked for everybody, everybody would be on it and fit and, and fabulous. And maybe we'll get there in 50 years. So the medical literature will have borne out uh, that everybody should be on this, this great, what? great diet that was created to treat epilepsy who knows right or or we'll follow the evidence and realize that maybe we shouldn't be dieting oh that's a possibility too yeah, i know Stranger, wild suggestion yeah, that's, but. <laughs> a, that's another possibility also um but yeah people never want to come after us for vaccines i think that we are i don't know we're not speaking to the right people we need to figure out a way to treat anti uh, trick anti-vax people into listening to the show and we can <laughs> pounce on them at the no, end. They right. know they know that we came after Gwyneth Paltrow and they're not they're not having it with us. <laughs> yeah. We lost lost a lot of lost a lot of good people that day. <laughs> She's a wonderful actress. Just a yes. talent so gifted. Yes. Love her acting work. No question. And I have no problem that's the thing. I have been on Goop many times as a result of doing this podcast as research, I guess. And I have no problem with like fashion advice or food that's good. Like, I don't know those things. I'm glad someone out there is telling people because I don't know anything about that. And listen, I, I, I am sympathetic in a sense because Sydney has had to break my heart so many times on the Sawbones podcast. You, Jesse, you cannot fathom how many episodes begin with, hey, Sydney, I read about this thing that I think might be good for me. Whether from like a weight loss perspective or an anxiety perspective or whatever, I think about I heard about this thing I'm gonna try and I'll try it for a week and the next week we'll have an episode about it. Just like also, it's garbage. <laughs> the whole thing is fake. Sorry, bud. Sorry, it's all placebo. Anyway, have a good week. Like it happens to me constantly. I, I'm sympathetic. Sydney, it must be interesting for you to be constantly engaged with the failures of your profession. Oh, that's that's definitely true. I mean, it's a it's a good way to stay humble, um, which I think is absolutely critical in the medical profession. Um, the the human body and medical science and and how much we don't know. It's it, it should be incredibly humbling. And I think if you come at taking care of people from that perspective, then you will you will do your best job and know your limitations. Um, I think it's really important as a physician to be able to say, I don't know, and and just honestly tell a patient that. And that's very hard. That's an incredibly difficult thing when you're in the room and somebody's looking to you for answers and you don't have an answer because either we don't know yet or that's something 
I'm going to have to read about that because that's not something I come across every day. And so I need to do more research. Oh, man, it's hard to say. I don't know. And I think um, knowing that a lot of people before me have either had to say I don't know or didn't and paid the price for that. I, I think it's good. I think I think it's hard also because I think it, to hear you talk about it, Sid, it is hard to say I don't know. But also the Internet does not also know. So please don't go ask the Internet because the Internet does not know better. And I think that's the assumption is the doc. There's there's this uh, presupposition people make on the Internet all the time about medicine or doctors that doctors are trying to keep the good stuff <laughs> from people. So like a, an admission of ignorance from a doctor can can like the Internet can rush in to fill that vacuum. And I think that can be really dangerous. It is. And that's that's actually one of the things that. I have said and I've heard my colleagues say a lot is that I wish I had the kind of self-assuredness or, or confidence that some of the people who are out there peddling fake cures and fake medicine have. Um, because if you if you watch like people on the Internet doing like nutritional response testing, um, they are so certain. And that is a certainty that. A lot of the time, I just can't have because I, I I think this is right. I have the evidence. This should be this should work for you. But everybody's different, and everything is every day is different. And so let's try it, and then come back and let's see how it goes. I, somebody with that kind of certainty always makes me a little wary. <laughs> Who's your favorite snake oil salesperson of all time? I mean, I, for me, it's got to be Pliny the Elder. I know you're going to say otherwise, oh, yeah. Justin, but I, he was so earnest and so creative in his <laughs> wrong cures. Uh, there's, It's never as easy as take this herb. Um, it's always like take this herb and then get some pigeon eggs and you know, insert it in there carefully and then put it in a bucket of urine and dump some wine in and leave it out in the sun for three days and then take it and, you know, bury it in the ground. And after a week, you can have your cousin who has red hair spit in it and then eat it and it, you'll be, you know, you won't be dizzy anymore or something like that. And it, it's just amazing. This stuff. It's so creative. Uh, mine is Curtis House Springer, a, uh, a cat that uh, bought a bunch of land in the Mojave Desert uh, and renamed it Zizix. Uh, Z. <laughs> so it would be, it's Z-Z-Y-Z-X, named such so that it would be the last word in health was the gimmick <laughs> there. And he had a radio, he had uh, health spas that were really just um, hot pools <laughs> in the desert. And he started, uh, he and had a radio station. Like, to be clear, when you say hot pools, we're not talking about natural hot springs, even. No. We're just no. talking about. No. He no. filed a mining claim. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. To it's get a, some land and then put in a water boiler. Yeah. And it's a, uh, uh, he had a 60 room hotel, a church, and there was a, a, a spa uh, that was shaped like a cross. And he had his own um, radio station. Uh, that just play like religious music and ads for his uh, medicines uh, constantly. So he um, he was known as the King of Quacks, right? King of Quacks, Curtis Housebringer is a good one. Tell me about uh, Paracelsus, the Swiss German important uh, doctor slash guy who apparently made a bunch of other things up. 
medicine is riddled and I'm sure I mean not just medicine not just all, not just science not just history not just any specific part of history all of history but figures like this who got some things really right and so they they changed the course of our understanding of, of medical science. Paracelsus was the first one to suggest that maybe we should take medicine. I mean, really, he was the first one to say there are there are chemicals that we could take that would make us better in different ways or fix things that are wrong with us. Uh, and that was a radical idea that was totally mind boggling to everyone who was saying, well, no, that that doesn't seem right at all. If we're going to take something, it should be like, just change your diet or take something that would make you throw up maybe. But the idea that you could introduce something into the human body that would be a medicine was was a radical idea. And so and this was got that not right. until the 16th century that someone came along and suggested this. Yes. So so he was and he was very proud of that. He but also <laughs> twist he basically invented homeopathy too and other fake things like medical astrology uh is which should not just should not just two those two words should not be a thing he was an alchemist too yeah, i believe an, an alchemist he uh i mean he basically he he named himself paracelsus as basically a dunk on a Greek philosopher named Celsus, just like with para in this case meaning like better than. He basically <laughs> named himself better than Celsus, and his full name. Oh man, this tells you everything you need to know about the cat. His full name was Philippus Aurelius Theophrastus Bombastus von Hohenheim. That was this cat's name, and he's like, actually, I'm better than Celsus. That's my that's my whole thing now. He was incredibly arrogant. That was his biggest thing is that nobody could teach him anything because he already knew better than anybody who was trying to teach him um i mean there he, there are some things he said you quote him in the book saying and this is in an address to colleagues let me tell you this every little hair on my neck knows more than you and all your scribes my shoe buckles <laughs> are more learned than your galen and i guess the ancient names don't have a correct pronunciation but i'm going to go with avicenna and my beard has more experience than all your high colleges. <laughs> He's the best. He's the best. Uh, I, he also said, uh, I am different. Let this not upset you. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. He's like, I, I love that. And that I think it's a good illustration. So he was clearly very intelligent and he he did some things that were good. But that kind of arrogance is dangerous because then we look back on you and say, well, you thought you were very smart, but then homeopathy and alchemy. So <laughs> he wrote one main book like in his life. He wrote one main book and from the German, it translates to the great surgery book. <laughs> He's just the best. He's the best dude. Um. What about – this is one that I uh, – this is a guy that I learned about a little from uh, a great book that, that Mary Roach wrote about the digestive system. But there's this guy named Dr. William Beaumont uh, who <laughs> is the father of much of what we know about the digestive system. And he also lived surprisingly recently. Mm -hmm. Sydney, who is he? So Dr. William Beaumont uh, is is – he, you can't mention him without mentioning his partner in crime, Alexis St. Martin. So Dr. William Beaumont was stationed at what I'm going to pronounce correctly, Mackinac Island. Don't it spell like Mackinac, but don't say that. Don't say that on a podcast. Don't say times. that on a podcast. 
<laughs> That's and the he was, fluoride of island pronunciations. Exactly. Apparently. It is Mackinac Island. And he was uh, stationed there and kind of was the lone doctor on this island that was full of like rough characters like fur trappers. And uh, one day he was he was called to the store, to the general store, because uh, a gun had gone off inside and one of the fur trappers, Alexis St. Martin, had been shot at close range in his abdomen. And what what results from this incident, uh, which at the time should have been fatal, but wasn't because Dr. Beaumont was actually a, a pretty good doctor for the time period. Uh, he tended to the wound and was able to keep him alive through infection and, and illness and everything that followed. But he developed this chronic gastric fistula, which is sort of like a tunnel that connected his the inside of his stomach to the outside world. And this in other provided, words, he had a permanent hole in himself that yes. went to directly to the inside of his stomach. And that right. wasn't his mouth. A, sh- a shortcut, basically. <laughs> A bypass. That's exactly right. And and Dr. Beaumont realized this was his opportunity to do studies on human digestion that had up to that point not been possible by sticking things in there and then pulling them back out and seeing what happened for various periods of time. Would literally tie string to chunks of food, dunk the food in the tummy hole, go fishing for a few minutes drag it back out, see what the effects were. Mm-hmm. And meticulously record every one of these findings in a journal. And this this lasted, these experiments in this relationship spanned many years because the two men were from very different social strata. They didn't speak the same language. They They were not naturally people who would have bonded. And so they would have arguments and St. Martin would say, forget this. I'm, I'm going to go back to Canada for a while where, where he was from. And just, I don't want you sticking your hand in my stomach anymore. And then Beaumont would write him letters and beg him, please come back, please, please. Can we do more of these experiments? I'll, I'll pay you. I'll pay. Eventually St. Martin had a family. I'll pay for your family to come too. just whatever it takes. I need to learn this stuff. And so St. Martin kept coming back. And so there's this tumultuous relationship that they have for years uh, until Beaumont figures all this stuff out and publishes his his work on human digestion that that totally changes the game. I mean, St. Martin suffered, of course, in his work life from the limited work avail- from the limited work possibilities for a 19th century man with a hole that leads directly to his stomach in him. Exactly. I, I mean, he previously had been a fur trapper, so he was out. I mean, in the wilderness and on I guess paddling around in a canoe I don't know whatever fur trappers do anyway it was a rough life it was not it was not one that would be easy if you had a hole in your side all he, the time he put himself out as a in in uh, medicine shows as like a, an oddity yeah uh, at following for, the for a while after after their research together but Sydney as a woman as you study the history of medicine are you struck by structural inequities um, between men and women and people of other genders? Definitely. Um, the One of the earliest episodes that we did uh, was on hysteria, which is, of course, not an actual 
disease. It's not an actual disorder. It was kind of a catch-all term for a woman not acting the way we would like her to. Um, and there may have actually been medical problems that underlied some of these symptoms and some of these behaviors. In other cases, it could have just been a woman who didn't want to conform to the societal standards of the time period. Um, and there were obviously all kinds of horrible treatments and, and um women were institutionalized for having hysteria and that concept is of course outdated today nobody's diagnosed with that now but you see echoes of that even in medicine today it's no surprise that um if you are not male your pain will not be perceived as great by your by your medical professional will uh under undervalue your your thoughts about what might be going on and um, not take you as seriously and under treat you. And we've seen that with um, things like I think endometriosis has been in the in the media spotlight a lot lately, where a lot of the times if it has to do with the pelvis uh, and you're not a male and you come in with a complaint, you're kind of just turned away and said, like, well, I don't know, take some ibuprofen, you'll be fine. Um and uh, and and the same thing, I think uh, childbirth, you could make a lot of arguments for the way that we medicalized childbirth and kind of took it away from the people giving birth and said, you can't handle this. We'll do it all for you. Just lay there and let us take care of it. Um, there are echoes of that now. It's not as bad, certainly. Uh, and I think with more female doctors that has that has helped. But uh, we still have a way to go. I think maybe because I suffer from migraine, which is a condition that affects many more women than men and is mm -hmm. invisible, um, I mean, until I start vomiting or crying. Sure. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I think I, maybe I had some sense of that feeling of what it's like to feel like your medical condition is ignored. Uh, because it isn't reflected in the pool of people who are doing the science. There are other mm -hmm. things that I've learned about in recent years that I really didn't understand. One was the extent to which medical studies are often performed on men and not women or many more men than women, mm -hmm. which, I mean, like, for one thing, men are on average much better bigger than women <laughs> like there are big different like physical differences between men and women that uh like just an extra 50 pounds or so on average i'm guessing yes. um that really like make you think like wow so all women are taking dude amounts of medicine irrespective of what size they are for example mm -hmm. no that's a great it's a great point a lot of if we take that's why evidence-based medicine, it's so important to not just use evidence to make medical decisions, but to be able to understand how we came to that evidence. What did we do to get to that rule that we have all decided is a rule now? Um, and I think if you start digging into studies, you'll find that, yes, men are overrepresented in, in various populations of different studies. And then... Um, I, white people are often overrepresented. And so we don't understand all of the differences when a patient comes in who doesn't fit the most common study subject 
profile. We don't understand all the ways in which our medicines might not act the same in their body, might not do all the things we want them to do. And we don't have nearly as well uh, of good an understanding of um, diseases that can only happen to people who have a uterus and ovaries. Um, in general, they don't they don't tend to receive as much study attention, uh, more so now than they used to, but but not as much. When my wife was pregnant, um, you know, you go through the lists of things that you uh, medical treatments that you can and can't have when one is pregnant, and many of them are prohibited basically because they haven't been studied in the population of pregnant women. Mm -hmm. And you're like, oh, I, I recently learned, oh, like studies have historically gone to great lengths to exclude pregnant women, including sometimes just excluding women because they could become pregnant just because it's complicated, <laughs> just because it, yes. would, it would make things complicated. And it leaves pregnant women without access to uh, many therapies that could be safe if they had been studied and determined to be safe. That's very true. It's it's also a great example of how the behavior of a pregnant person is so tightly regulated in part because we don't know how harmful different things are or what is harmful in some cases. And so we would just rather tell somebody, look, it's not about you. It's about the baby. So just don't do any of these things and don't take any of these medicines and don't go to any of these places. And it's not about you. It's your quality of life has to be sacrificed at this moment because there's another person that we care more about. And that's very much the message instead of, hey, how about we take care of both of you? How about we make sure that we're giving you the best information so you can have a good quality of life as well as the new life that's growing inside you? Uh, we don't we don't really take that into consideration. Yeah. But flip side, if a researcher <laughs> comes up to you and they're like, hey, want to roll the bones in your baby to help us see if NyQuil works? Like you probably not. No, I think I'm okay. Well, I, I think that if you're talking about NyQuil, that's a really bad example. Well, NyQuil is a patent medicine. Yes, I understand this. But like the but if you're talking, <laughs> it is hard to find will like it is hard to find pregnant people who want to who are willing to risk take the risk that is associated with like that sort of research, right? Unless they have certain medical conditions where maybe they they would really like to see if they have other therapeutic options. What you might be talking about is the legal risk for the doctors involved and the trouble it would take to design a study like that. And it's just harder. It's harder to get IRB approval and you just decide, eh, I don't want to mess with all that. Justin, you recently had a significant medical procedure. Uh, yes, Jesse. Thank you for bringing it up. Yes, I did. <laughs> um, I'm basically, guess. I guess I just want to bond with you emotionally because I also went through that procedure. Oh boy. It was great. Um, it for a second. The two of you have two beautiful children and you had decided not to have any more. Oh yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, was there a discussion in your family as to what course of action would be pursued to ensure that the, uh, that there would be two and no more? Yeah, we, d we definitely discussed it and uh, we knew, we knew we were done and so there were a lot of various contraceptive methods that were available largely to me. I think we were actually the discussion was forced because they were talking about when you had your um, putting in something when you had the C-section. Right. Yeah. Well, and that I don't in retrospect, I don't know why we didn't jump on that sooner. But 
in order to, at least in the state of West Virginia, in order to have a tubal ligation done while you're having your seat, because I knew I was going to have to have C-section, uh, in order to have that done, you have to sign paperwork six weeks beforehand. And we just didn't. And I don't, I, I'm a doctor. I know better. I don't know why we didn't, because we could have done that. But then once we realized we'd missed that deadline, Justin said, you know what? I got this. <laughs> I got <laughs> I this covered. I, I took a class at my uh, managed care provider taught by a, a stern nurse who seemed a little bit like Roz from Night Court. <laughs> and she was real cool, though. I really liked her. Actually, this was probably the best class I've ever taken at my managed care provider. I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things that she said was she was, you know, she basically made it very clear that the permanent birth control methods for women were just dramatically more involved and uh by extension, dangerous procedures uh, yes. than a vasectomy is, which is the procedure that I have only now been able to say out loud on this show. Um. <laughs> what a, what a twist! No, that that is that is very true, and that and I should clarify, I was already having a C-section, so it, I could have had it done at the same time, and it would have been much less risky. Uh, had I not been having that done to just add on a tubal ligation, yes, definitely that procedure would have been a lot riskier for me than a vasectomy was and, for you. And I think I, even if you had had it done, I probably would have go ahead and get the vasectomy. I'm willing to take <laughs> whatever risks to make sure that it's just the two kids. <laughs> whatever it takes. We may want to talk about you going back in there, Sid. Just make sure uh-huh. it's just just the two, I think, for now, for good, forever. Thank you. Justin, you sound like you're on the verge of like full genital removal surgery. No, no, I no, no, no. I just want to be mature and safe and responsible and a parent of two children. <laughs> Were you prepared, Justin, for the reality of having a surgical procedure done on your body? Had you had something like that been done to you before? Uh, I'm okay. I had my wisdom teeth removed, and that's about as close as I ever got. I dropped a TV on my finger when I was four and smashed it and had to get it sewed up. And that's about all the medical procedures I've had. I was not prepared for the fact that I would uh, be semi-conscious for the entirety of the procedure that was unnerving didn't see that one coming thought i was going to be kind of out cold and waking up later um surprisingly surprising how quickly i got used to having frozen vegetables on my crotch i thought that that would be something that was much more of an embarrassment to me and then a couple of days after surgery i actually traveled to your parents home with my uh, with my bird's eye, mm-hmm. uh, uh, right there, and uh, did not have any. Sort of, by the way, folks, if you're listening to this at home, you got this coming up. Frozen cauliflower, <laughs> riced uh, cauliflower, riced cauliflower is yeah. the way to go. Super small, super malleable, because they frozen for I mean hours upon hours. That is that is your that is your top choice. You also really seem to have have come to love the jock strap. You know what? I probably wore the jock strap for longer than I needed to. Really enjoyed the security <laughs> of the jock strap. Love being ready for sports whenever the 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 option to play sports broke out. Love that flexibility. You didn't even uh, know there was a strap for jocks like you. The, jocks like me. Uh, the other thing about the jock strap, the jock strap that I bought uh, on the front, it displays a model uh, dude wearing the jock strap. On the back, 
It shows their entire butt, <laughs> which just seems so unnecessary to me. We know a jockstrap provides no butt protection, but it did seem a trifle unnecessary to show that, yes, this is the jockstrap where your whole butt is out. Guaranteed every time. I had had an appendectomy a few years previous. And, you know, that was one of those situations where, you know, before they got to cutting me open, a, a nice anesthesiologist said, we're going to give you some of that Michael Jackson stuff. And you won't remember <laughs> any of this. They literally, which seems upsetting because he passed away. Um, yeah. But uh, they they gave me some of the Michael Jackson stuff. And, you know, I was, I, I was logy for quite some time afterwards. I didn't, I wasn't full of pep, but mm. it was fine. Roz from Night Court had prepared me for the fact that I would be conscious during my vasectomy procedure. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. But she had not prepared me for conducting a conversation during it. Okay, yes. Or the smell of my own insides burning. Sure, yeah, huge. That's huge. I was not, uh, (laughs) while I was in in this sort of twilight state, uh, and I could still hear my doctor, at one point I heard him say, I don't know how the vast difference gets so gnarled like this. Excellent. Well, at least I'm not very high on drugs. Oh, wait, I'm extremely high. And that's and I'm hearing you say that. And in my head, I'm like, that can't be normal. Uh, That can't be right. The first thing he said to me now. okay, after you have a vasectomy, it it takes a while to sort of uh, before the fertility is completely excised for the the sperms are all out, out of your system. And the first thing this cat says to me. I'm still high out of my mind. First thing he says to me is, now remember, you're still fertile. And it's like, what did we do here today? <laughs> did it go bad? Did it not work? What are you telling me? I was so mad when it was months later and I still had to do doctor things uh, in order to confirm that uh, the procedure had been a success. I was like, yes. I was awake. You cut a hole in me. Two doctors one of whom help was helping the other cut a hole inside of me squirted me full of no feely juice that didn't work that great cut me open cut parts of me cauterized them sewed me back up i missed work and you're telling me that it's not confirmed (laughs) i'm just glad that there's finally a place where us fellas can complain about our relatively minor surgical procedures <laughs> and, and no one could judge no one literally on this Skype call uh-huh. can judge how how just brave I think if I can use the word brave we are for enduring <laughs> I was awake during both C-sections, just yeah. throwing that out there. Yeah, my, I said that was way worse than my than I expected to my wife one day. <laughs> I was like, I, that was dramatic. I feel like they soft, they, they slow-pitched all that, or what do you call that? They they really under-talked everything that happened when they when they gave me that thing. That was much more. That was a much bigger deal than I thought it was. And she said, and she said she looked at me, just locked eyes with me, having uh, given birth to three children, uh, two of them without medication, and said, she said, yeah, same with childbirth. And I was like, oh, okay, honey, you win. Yeah, okay, yeah, sorry. Fair point. And uh, yep. the, me not doing the one could lead to the other. So, yeah, you win. Square enough. Mm-hmm. We're all good. 
It's all good. <laughs> uh, Sydney, how do you think uh, one of these old-timey doctors would feel about the way medicine is practiced today? How would, if we could get Pliny the Elder over like helicopters and tall buildings, if he, if he was chill about that stuff, how mm-hmm. would he react to the modern practice of medicine? I think I think the biggest, well, for Pliny, I think he would think we were underutilizing lots of um, elements of nature in our treatments. Like, where are all the feces that you're not using as medicine? And yeah. why, where, why are, do, where do foxes figure in yeah. this plan? <laughs> why aren't you using wolf's hearts for anything? Um, but I think other than that, uh, we now we can touch patients. I think that's a big difference if you go all the way back to ancient times they weren't they weren't examining a lot of people they were just kind of looking at you maybe looking at your pee but not really touching you i think that would that would be a little disturbing but i think that um i think the biggest thing they would say is why i I don't think the switch from individualized treatment plans to more like disease-based treatment plans i think that would be very dissonant to an old-timey ancient physician i think that would be very hard for them to to understand why we would treat two people who maybe look completely different, completely different ages or sizes or genders or whatever, why we would treat them with the same medicine. I think that would be very, very confusing and disorienting uh, to see that shift. And then I think that the whole, um, this, you know, the Hippocratic Oath says that we would not uh, charge students for teaching them. That's part of the Hippocratic Oath. And I think that if you kind of take that and expand it to the way that medicine is a business now, and it's not it's not individualized, it's not private, it's not an art, it's not a human, it's not a humanistic thing. It's it's like a business in this country. I think that would be very disturbing to ancient physicians um, who took what they did to be a this very profound undertaking of, you know, human behavior to help each other, to cure each other, to treat each other, to to provide care. Um, I think the way that medicine has become this, something that you can buy and sell, I think that would be very upsetting. That's my guess. Plus probably like some stuff about the volume of the two different colors of bile. Well, that too. <laughs> well, I mean, are we assuming we already told them about like TVs and electricity and everything? Because it's going to be a rough week regardless. The, the electronic medical record alone is just, sure. that's the end of it. <laughs> well, uh, Justin McElroy, Dr. Sidney McElroy, thank you so much for coming on Bullseye. It's nice to get to talk to you guys. Uh, it's been too long. Yeah, likewise. It's our pleasure. Thank you. Please buy our book. Dr. Sidney McElroy and Justin McElroy, their podcast, Sawbones, is weekly. One of my favorites here at Max Fund. Their book is called The Sawbones Book, The Hilarious, Horrifying Road to Modern Medicine. It is hilarious and a beautiful book as well. Go grab yourself a copy. And thank you for being a Max Fund member. It means a lot. Thank you.